This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I am your host, Denise Dupra, a general internist involved in primary care at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and an associate director of education for the Center for Individualized Medicine in Rochester. Over the next several weeks, we're going to devote a mini-series of Mayo Clinic Talks to the incredible field of genes in your health. We'll discuss concepts in genetics that are essential to providing the best care for your patients and how you can apply this information to individualize and optimize patient care in your own practice. Today, we're joined by Dr. John Prasuti, and we'll be discussing It's All in the Family. Dr. John Prasuti is an assistant professor, the chair of the Department of Family Medicine for Mayo Clinic, Florida, and a co-director of Genomics in Action for Mayo Clinic Center for Individualized Medicine. He is the principal investigator in Florida for the Tapestry DNA Sequencing Research Study, which is designed to understand the short-term and long-term impact of genetic testing on people's health care when their DNA results are part of the electronic medical record. His passion is to integrate the use of family history and machine learning to identify those patients at risk for inherited cancers. More broadly, his interest is in how we translate and implement genomic discoveries into everyday activities of primary care. Dr. Prasuti, thank you for coming today. Welcome. And John, it's a great pleasure to have you here. Thank you. And I very much appreciate being invited, Denise. Thank you. Well, we are kindred spirits, you know, as a primary care clinician as you are. And so we share an interest. And I have to tell you that I'm coming up on 30 years next week as a practicing clinician. And I never got taught anything about genomics. This is a bit of a foreign concept to me. When we talked about sort of the title, it's all in the family. I really want to let you know that a lot of the people probably in our audience listening to this podcast have very little training in genomics, when to get genetic testing, what is genomic testing. So I want you to give us really sort of the the nuts and bolts. But before we get to that, tell me how we get there. Tell me about family history, because I think I agree with you that that's really a critical element as a starting point to figuring out, do we need to test? Great question, a great lead in. So I think the first place I like to start is a general comment that we don't have to be professors in genetics. We don't have to be experts in the area. It is an evolving field. It's going to be really important as we go forward, especially for our primary care colleagues. When we look at the overall population and how many individuals might be affected by an inherited disease, and in particular, I look at inherited cancers, and really only about one in 10 cancers are inherited, but it's so important for us to know when that one person might be at risk. So we want to have the conversation, and to me, it all starts with knowing family history. Family history is just the support bone for what we need to do and move forward with getting that information understanding what patients might be at risk and might want to consider genetic testing and understanding when to refer those patients forward. So to me, it is all in the family. It's about taking the moments when you're with family to understand what's going on and making sure that you communicate that to your physician. So, you know, we've all gotten that family history. Yeah, mom had cancer, dad had cancer. So are there aspects of cancer, I mean, specifics 
that can be really helpful for us when we're sitting in the office that we ought to jot down that are really going to say, ah, this is something more than just dad had colon cancer at age 95. Right. The most important thing is to ask the question and to know about the family history and to get it in the chart. As primary care physicians, we do a really good job of that the first time the patient sees us. It's when patients come back and they come back, you know, year after year, and we sort of forget. Actually, when we look at it in statistics, only about half the time do we ever go back and ask for family history to be renewed. So we can have someone that can go through literally a whole generation and we might not update part of their family history. The key parts of family history appear to be related to certain types of cancers. There's actually the NCCN guidelines, and those guidelines tell us that when there are certain elements to something that's happened either in the family or with an individual, then we should seriously consider referring them for genetic counseling and then maybe genetic testing. And some of the things that are very absolute, as an example, would be a first-degree relative with pancreatic cancer. If someone has a first-degree relative with pancreatic cancer, they should see a genetic counselor. That's one example. Other examples would be thinking about things that run in the family. We've all had patients that have come in and said, well, diabetes runs in the family. Or I know we're talking more about cancers with my discussion today, but someone that might say, my father didn't do well in a particular medicine, or my sister didn't do well in that medicine, and they ask us to keep that in mind when we select medicines. Similar to that, we have to think about what happens in the family history when it comes to inherited cancers. So individuals that have had multiple cancers in their family or bilateral cancers, as an example, so they have cancers in two organs in the body, those are things that should be a red flag to us and it should say, wow, I need to dig in a little deeper, maybe get a little more history and consider referring them to a genetic counselor. It's interesting you mentioned the medication issue because I remember when I'd have a patient who came in, they'd be clinically depressed. And I'd use a screening tool and they clearly had depression. And they would often come in and say, you know, my sister, my mother, my dad did really well on medication X. And I'd put them on medication X. And for the longest time, I thought, well, you know, this is all sort of a, a placebo effect that they're getting better on medication X. My interest has been in pharmacogenomics. And then I learned about about CYP2D6 and CYP2C19. And now I go, yeah, the reason their family members did well on those drugs is yep. because their particular phenotype for CYP2C19 or CYP2D6 makes them more likely to respond to the drug. So, yep, I did the right thing for all the wrong reasons. It's sort of like that test-taking thing. You are correct. And I look at it now. So you've got a little bit more time than I, but I'm around 27 years now, I think getting close to 28 from when I first started to practice. And my patients apparently were actually teaching me something about genetics way before we even knew those answers, because I would hear the same thing. And it's interesting and wonderful to know now that we know the science behind that. So you mentioned genetics counselors. How important are genetics counselors when you're considering sending a patient for genetics test? Or perhaps I'll give you another scenario, which does happen when the patient comes in waving and say, hey, I got my test, my direct-to-consumer test from one of a various and different number of companies that they're available from. I feel like genetic counselors are very important. The way I look at this, there are different types of tests 
that physicians get comfortable with depending on where they are in their practice. And so most likely you've treated patients with different conditions where you said, oh, I need to go ahead and order a particular test. And it would have some genetic element to the test, like maybe you're ruling out celiac disease as an example. That would be one way or polycythemia vera and you're ordering particular tests that are related to the genetics. Most family medicine physicians, most general internists aren't necessarily comfortable ordering very, very specific tests or test panels that surround specific conditions like an inherited cancer syndrome. A lot of times we really want to make sure that we engage a genetic counselor. And then from there, they might even consult with their own medical geneticist and then determine what panel is the best panel to order. So in our normal practices, there's a handful of tests that we might order uh, potentially even something like familial hypercholesterolemia. But when we start getting beyond that, I think the role of a genetic counselor is very important. And I rarely order any type of gene panel. That I really rely on my colleagues in genetics to help guide us down that pathway. Now, that's different than when someone comes in holding that piece of paper and saying, I just had this test done. And I think it's just important for us to remember that the director of the consumer testing does have limitations and shouldn't be used as a diagnostic test. It's good to you know, people get engaged with it. There are the sort of recreational genes that go along with that, learning about how you might respond to different foods and what your genes would predict about your eye color and your height and your hair texture, et cetera and maybe about your ancestry. But when it comes down to making medical decisions, I always say to folks, I'm glad you had that test done, but now we need to do the true medical test and then make decisions based on that. And before you do that, you'll see a genetic counselor. So what you're saying is that the direct-to-consumer testing, while helpful, really isn't a confirmatory test. It doesn't tell us the whole story when it comes to either looking for a specific genetic syndrome in particular for genetically inherited cancer syndromes. That is absolutely correct. I would use an example of a patient, and I think that it'd be okay just to talk in general terms about a patient of mine that did have a direct-to-consumer test completed that dealt with the BRCA genes. And in this scenario, she had received that test as a gift from family members, had the test done, it was negative. And as a result of that, suggested to me that she no longer needed to be screened for breast cancer because her BRCA testing was negative. And it's important to note several pieces. There's so much into that story. The first is that the direct-to-consumer testing that's available right now for BRCA or BRCA genes, that testing is very limited. And it only looks at a couple of the gene elements. So we could definitely miss positive tests. Uh, the second is that only one in every 10 breast cancers appears to be linked to any type of inherited element. And so there's still 90% of those breast cancers that occur because of sporadic changes and environment and many other elements. So having that negative test really doesn't change what we would recommend as routine preventive healthcare screening. Well, and I have to emphasize that too, because I think there's a true false sense of security and this idea that, well, if I don't have the gene, I won't get breast cancer. 
or if I don't have the gene, I won't get colon cancer. So I don't need a colonoscopy. And, and that's really sort of a myth out there, I think, amongst a lot of patients. And a lot of patients I see who say, well, no one in my family's had breast cancer, so I don't need even a mammogram, not even talking about genetic testing. They just say no one's had breast cancer. So it's a huge educational piece, I think, that each of us as primary care clinicians have to spend time explaining to patients that, yes, but, and it's a lot of time with the yes, but, which is really critical to educating our patients about the true risks of breast cancer that is non-genetically inherited, at least what we know at this point with some of the autosomal dominant or BRCA1, BRCA2, and maybe even check two sort of markers. Right. And I don't know of a circumstance where a negative genetic test for a variant would ever supersede normal screening. Yeah. I've not seen anybody stop it because of it. I think that would be not very wise. No. Not very our, wise our, at all. Right. And that's one of the roles of the primary care physician is to try to be out there and to educate patients that the information is helpful, but we still know the tried and true proven elements of preventive screening and when they need to occur. So I want to ask you a question that I actually don't think you may be able to answer, but it's come up in my clinic a couple of times. What do we do with the patient who has no knowledge of their parents, for instance, through adoption with unknown biological lineage? So that is a really good question. And it's a provocative question. Where do we go when they when they are adopted? What I talk to patients about is I go back to some of the basics and the training as a physician, and I talk about lifestyle, and I talk about prevention, and I make sure that they know what needs to be done in terms of routine screening, and what we know has been proven over time to prove our risk of discovering disease early, sort of the interception of disease, if you will, prevention and interception. For them, I think that over time, we're going to understand a little bit more of where to go and how to test those patients. At this moment, I think about the tier one genes for those patients, the genes that are truly actionable, the BRCA, Lynch syndrome, and familial hypercholesterolemia. And I do have a conversation generally with them about the opportunity they might have to get some tier one gene testing. I personally do not push those patients to consider larger genome sequencing because, again, it's more about if we know that the gene is positive, there's a risk. And understanding gene positivity or variant positivity tells us about risk, but it doesn't tell us about the absolute outcome. Just because someone is BRCA1 positive does not mean they will get breast cancer. And we know that there's so much more, whether it's sporadic cases or it's the environment or other factors that lead to that ultimate disease condition. So you use the word actionable. And I think in the genetic literature, we hear that term a lot. And I think for people who are unfamiliar with the literature, the question is, what does that actually mean? If we hear that there is a gene we're looking for where there's, it's actionable, what would that mean? So the CDC has a tier one actionable genes. This was developed by minds pulled together to look at what genes do we know that if we get a positive result, there's something that we can actually take forward actions with the patient that can change outcomes for the patient. 
So familial hypercholesterolemia, that's one good example, because if we have a patient in the practice, they have a, an exceptionally high LDL, they are screened for FH, their genes come back positive. Now we know a few things. We know that not only is there a role for ongoing lifestyle modification and statin therapy for that individual that we know has the variant, but there should be a conversation, at least we hope there's a conversation about their kids and about their siblings, maybe even about their parents, because this is a scenario where there needs to be a higher level of acuity in screening and potentially even treatment in that family or in that, that, that group. If we think about BRCA, we, can, we have so much. We know so much more now about breast cancer screening, and we have multiple modalities for breast cancer screening. If we know about Lynch syndrome, that's a great example as well. Do we actually wait till age 45 for the first colonoscopy? We don't. We pull that colonoscopy up earlier in life because we know someone is Lynch syndrome positive. So they're actionable. They're, there's a significant body of knowledge in the background that tells us that we can help the outcome for that patient because we can take action. And there's a lot of work in medical genetics to understand as we go forward in the future, there will be probably additional genes that will become actionable genes. I would agree that I really rely on genetic counselors often to help me make decisions about what I should do with that patient who I'm worried may be carrying some heritable genetic condition that's going to put them or family members at risk. But if you don't have that, do you typically, would you pick for a gene or would you pick a gene panel? If you don't have the luxury of that, and you have a patient who you really think is at risk for a heritable cancer syndrome. Most commonly, would you pick a panel of genes? Is that a least, a more cost-effective way to go than to pick off, say, Lynch syndrome or uh, BRCA1 syndrome? Um, is there a general sense of what a, a clinician should do? I would actually still go over to the 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 tier one. If I was going to pick a panel and a tier one gene panel was available to me, that's most likely where I would go. And beyond that, I'd most likely still try to seek out advice from a genetic counselor for the patient. What's interesting about your question is why would we think that the patient was at risk? What is it about that patient's scenario that makes us think they're at risk? Is it because they had a couple of family members, either first or second degree family members that had some type of intra-abdominal or visceral cancer of some sort, but we don't know exactly what it was, but it was two or three relatives, that would actually meet some criteria to say, yes, they could be at a risk. And I would do my best at least to consult in some way. Maybe the patient can't get to an appointment. In this day and age with video visits, it's a little bit easier but if they can't go to an appointment for some reason, potentially seeking out the advice of a colleague who would deal in this area regularly to say, what would we really be looking for? And then we could work on getting the gene panel and get that ordered for the patient. I still default more to the, the tier one genes, but it really does depend on the nature of why I have that index of suspicion. I know that when genetic testing first came out, even for tier one genes, the cost was prohibitive for most patients. And most insurance companies didn't, and I know many still don't cover genetic testing. I know you can't speak to any specifics, but 
from a general standpoint, where are we at with cost now? Because a lot of times patients are reluctant to get a test because it's going to be expensive. It's going to be thousands of dollars to get that information. That has steadily decreased year after year. And and what I have told some people is that really what was unobtainable to the general public just 10 years ago, because the cost was so incredibly high, now you can get the equivalency of that genetic testing by what it might cost you to have cable TV in your home with a good internet connection in a few months. The cost has really dropped so much. And so many of the direct-to-consumer tests, we're talking about numbers that start in the $100 to $200 range, maybe paying four or $500, again, for something that might have been several thousand just a few years ago. And so it really has become affordable. If you look at Again, the direct-to-consumer piece, we're learning a little bit about some at-risk cancer genes, but you're not getting a whole lot of them, but you're still getting some of that information, really less than $200 is what I've seen. Of course, you could wait for a holiday gift to come your way or a gift card or a discount code, and you never know, you might get it even less than that. We've talked a lot about sort of the, the cancer syndromes, which is, I know, an area you have a particular interest in, familial hypercholesterolemia. But, you know, I don't know what percent of the U.S. population takes a medication or worldwide. And I know one of my interests is pharmacogenomics, you know, how our body and the enzymes we basically and the transporters we have, how they vary from person to person. So can you make a comment on whether or not patients should be getting panels of pharmacogenomics? Should we be getting our enzymes tested before we start medicines? Is there any rationale or validity to say, yeah, everybody get pharmacogenomics for everybody. It's all in our family for meds. So if we look at pharmacogenomics and we look at patients that actually have some type of variant in their genetic makeup that would make a difference in the currently known medications, it is a very high percentage of us. It really is. And so I do encourage patients to consider pharmacogenomic testing or PGX testing. I do encourage them to go out and consider having one of the panels done if they know they're going to start medication. But what's also interesting is that sometimes we need to start medication and they need to have already completed that panel. So I am a proponent of folks thinking forward a little bit because we never know what type of medicine we might need to take next week or next month or next year. And we're looking at, in terms of the general population, well into the high 90% 90 and higher that will have some type of alteration in those genes that will make them a high metabolizer, slow metabolizer, all that. And I don't do a whole lot in, in pharmacogenomics. I might not be using the right terms there. But when we talk about almost everyone having some type of variant when it comes down to pharmacogenomics, I really do like it when patients have gone out, gotten that testing done, and then I know what I need to select the medication, what I might need to make a difference in my selection. Great. Have you yourself in your practice found instances where after the fact that testing pharmacogenomics has been helpful or made significant changes in your medication selection for your patients? Yes, I've had that happen to me in the practice uh, a few times already. 
where the patient had participated, uh, whether it was uh, in a study or just decided they wanted to have pharmacogenomic testing, or we had sent them for testing because they didn't seem to have the appropriate response to a medication. And that data has actually helped me with the selection of the next medication. So I do think that uh, it's a very, very important part of medicine. I believe that pharmacogenomic testing will really become mainstay in us in primary care in the upcoming years. You mentioned you've been at this gig for 27 years, and I've been at this gig for 30 years. Um, We've seen dramatic changes in our practices. So how and what have you been able to do to incorporate genomics into your practice? And also, do you have some comments on what you've been able to do to try to help your colleagues introduce it into their practices? Because we know that we're really at the tip of the iceberg, I think, in utilizing these tools to really, to the betterment of our patient care. So I feel that one of the important areas to talk about with genomics in primary care is to assist our colleagues in not feeling like it's a burden to add this to their daily routine with their patients. If I think about my practice over the last five years, it's one thing to have, let's say, a new antibiotic or a new antihypertensive come out, uh, or to learn a little bit more about a disease that I didn't know much about, like mature onset of diabetes of young Modi, which is something that five years ago I don't think I had even heard of. So those are small little incremental pieces of data to keep in our minds when we're treating a patient. And then we did add COVID. And that gave us a whole new layer because we are still treating patients for a condition that truly didn't exist. So that's a little more burden on the time it takes to take care of a group of patients. What I don't want people to feel like is that we're adding genomics on a whole other discipline of medicine and expecting primary care physicians to take that under their wing and to be an expert because I don't think they need to be. To me, it all starts with a very simple question before I finish a visit with a patient, and that is, is there anything new in your family history? That's a simple one sentence, and I cannot tell you how many times in the last few years where someone has given me new information that has changed their care or changed their screening by simply asking that one sentence. And I don't have to do anything about genetics. Is there anything new in your family history? And then going over to think about where this could affect the patient. If it's a first-degree relative with endometrial cancer, ovarian cancer, pancreatic cancer, we need a little more information and potentially think about getting that person to a genetic counselor. If it's, again, finding out that this is the second or third cancer in their family, if it's a similar organ cancer that seems to run through the family, once we know the information, it usually jumps right out at us. Our biggest challenge in primary care is we're busy. There's a lot going on. And it's just that one question that I like to incorporate into as many visits as I can. I think that's a really important take-home message. So it sounds like you mentioned early on that we get a family history that first time and that's it. It's like nothing ever changes. And we know that things change all the time. So as a general rule, do you ask that question at every visit or once every three months? Or when do you ask your question about anything new in the family history? So I would say every time I see a patient for what would be considered their physical, 
whether it's an annual physical or maybe they're healthy enough that they don't necessarily come in the office quite that often. If I see that my patient is not a frequent visitor of the office, then I'll take advantage of it at that moment. Just like the concept of if your patient is here and they need an immunization, you should talk to them about the vaccine that they might need and try to do it that day because you have the patient right there. If the patient is not someone that comes in very frequently, I'll just ask during that visit. So it doesn't have to be a physical, but it usually is at the time of a physical. And then I try to record it in the chart and then make a decision and have a discussion with them. That's great. I love how you basically take that moment and capitalize on it to ask about, is there anything new? Because I think what you've highlighted is we don't all have to be genomic experts. We don't all have to take a course, a crash course in understanding pharmacogenomics. But getting that information about the family history really puts us in a position to start to make an assessment about, is this patient at risk for a inheritable disease? And is it one where we need to take action, where we can make a difference in their health? With that, I would like to thank you all for joining us today. We've been talking about cancer genetics, genetic conditions that run in families. In essence, it's all in the family with Dr. John Prasuti. Thank you for your time. If you have enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcast, please follow us wherever you subscribe to podcasts. Please also check out our sister podcast, The Pursuit of Precision, The Science Advancing Individualized Medicine, which features in-depth conversations with researchers and physicians on discoveries in emerging science in precision medicine. Topics include population genomics, the episome, digital health, the exposome, and individualized vaccines for cancer. See, your genes really matter.